0: Do-do-do-do-do, cue intro music.
1: Welcome back to Sorry We're Open. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Jess. And here we are.
0: Why are you still here? Actually, I know exactly why you're still here. We're funny.
1: Oh, there goes the <laughs> I would like to point out that the foam part of the microphone fell, on, it fell off as soon as Lindsay hit record.
0: Yep, yeah, that's fine. Uh, I was just going to say week four and uh, guess what? Still not tired of the theme music.
1: I'm so happy for you, Lindsay, and yes. your excitement around the theme music. Yeah, me when, too. Whenever I plus play on my computer and iTunes opens up because I don't use iTunes the theme song plays. So it's like kind of fun and exciting now when iTunes accidentally opens. Right, because then
0: I'm sure you listen to the whole 30-second theme song. I do. Yeah.
1: Okay, great. All right, so another week. Yeah, we have a really
0: exciting, important guest on this week.
1: Yeah, so this week the pod tackles, like I would say, one of the more serious topics we've done. Um, And I think that it's so such an important topic to talk about and our guest nick does a really incredible job about being real and authentic and embracing the difficult topic
0: yeah and so for that reason given its importance um you know we decided that that was gonna be the only segment of this week and it's a really
1: great segment so
0: encourage you all to
1: listen through to the end enjoy Next, we have our guest segment. Hey, guest, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Uh, yeah, my name's Nick.
1: Hey,
0: Nick. How are you? Nick is my work husband. They work at admissions together, and
1: she doesn't shut up about admissions
2: and or Nick, so. <laughs> we spend every waking moment in uh, the admissions department, so.
1: All right, Nick, what's your topic?
2: My topic today is toxic masculinity and never came up with a word for the other part, um, trauma or traumatic events.
0: Yeah, that's, this is going to be, I think, an emotional one, but I don't know. Jess, Jess texted me. She's like, Nick is coming on and this is his topic and this is what he told me and I'm going to cry. And I was like, okay, well, we can do this on the podcast. Like, it's our podcast, but we'll we'll see where the day takes us.
2: She told me that yesterday and I admittedly forgot to bring tissues for you guys or for Jess specifically. <laughs>
0: I, yeah, I
1: feel like Jess might need them, but okay. So why did you pick this topic? Or what inspired you to pick this topic?
2: Okay, um, so as a faithful pod listener, um, I was listening to Darby's podcast and had heard him talk about toxic masculinity. Um, and it kind of made me feel a little bit more comfortable about coming onto the podcast and talking about it myself. Um, and I wanted to talk about it through an, a lens, through a lens uh, that I personally experienced. So I've experienced uh, loss. I lost my mother. Um, she passed away about two and a half years ago, um, and grief and traumatic events like that happened to everybody, male or female, um, and I thought it'd be interesting to not only research but talk about um, what can happen for males specifically in those times of grieving or trauma.
1: Okay, so where did you want to start?
2: That's a great question. Um, I think what's most important is that what I'm going to be talking about is very personal to me and that... While I have a bunch of research in front of me that I've done, every person's own lived experience is completely different—male, female. Um, no matter um, how you identify yourself, it's going to be a very personal experience. So, this is how I went through it, um, and maybe you—someone will take something away from that. Maybe they won't. Um, but I think talking about it in the first place is a good is a good way to start.
1: I totally agree.
0: Yes. <laughs> Um. So I guess to just kick it off, I I I guess we should just dive right in. I don't, you know, I I know we said to talk about it, but now that we're here, I'm like, ah. (laughs) Um, but I'm trying to figure out how to word
2: this. So let me. I'll say something before you ask any questions. Okay, let's do that. I was talking to Jess um a while ago, and one thing that I've told Jess before that I know she liked um was one thing when you're talking to someone. Um, and this is more general before kind of we get into the research about um, men specifically. But when you're talking to someone about a traumatic event, you asking a question, like you're not reminding them that it's happened. Like um, my mom passed away. Like you saying, oh, like, are you asking questions about my mom? doesn't remind me that she passed away. Or if you ask someone who um, got sick or got a diagnosis for um, some type of illness, you're not reminding them that they have it because, you know they know Um, it's something that they live with every day so it's it's almost more uncomfortable for those around you than the person who's experiencing that themselves but it can be isolating
0: yeah that's really interesting because like i think a lot of people kind of don't really know how to handle it like how to talk to people who have experienced this grief because it's it's such a sensitive topic regardless and while i've not gone through something like as traumatic it's it is still I guess awkward when people like kind of beat around the bush, like mm-hmm. like I was just doing currently. Um,
2: but well, so um, one of the two main pieces of um, research, uh, if you if you will, that I brought in today, um, one of them is a book uh, called Option B by Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. Sheryl Sandberg is um, the chief operating officer of a small social media network, um, it goes by the name Facebook, um, <laughs> and Adam Grant is a researcher at Wharton, uh, which is a pretty reputable school. Um, And so one thing that they talk about in option B um, is about um, how when Sheryl Sandberg, she lost her husband and she went back to Facebook and no one would talk about it. Um, And that felt very isolating to her. But one thing that she found was that she also wasn't talking about it. And that compounded where she wouldn't talk about it. Coworkers wouldn't talk about it. She wouldn't talk about it. And then it just got more and more uncomfortable. Um, So Asking those questions can be really important, and the wording behind questions that you ask people who are going through traumatic events can also be important. Um, instead of saying, how are you? you? You could change it to, how are you today? Really make it much smaller and much more manageable, um, and also know that it's okay to say, I've been better, or I'm not feeling great today, but tomorrow's another day or something like that, and that wording can be really impactful.
1: Yeah, I think in general, like something I've learned in like life, not in just grief, is how important language is and how like it's so important to understand the impact you can have on someone. Um, So to go back a little bit about grief, like how did your experience with grief, like how did that look? And like, I guess, how did you compare it to what you believed grief was?
2: Yeah, so um, I mean, I wasn't expecting it to happen to me. I don't think anybody is. And unfortunately it's something that most of us will experience at some point in our life. Um, And the way that it manifested itself for me was um, my mom got sick and she was in the hospital for a prolonged period of time. So it wasn't instant. Um, so my grieving in, in this sense it was grieving, but I think traumatic events uh, in general, a diagnosis that um, can be tough to hear can also fall into a similar category. Um, I would kind of place myself into um, like a very stoic category, which is actually what some of the research that I brought in for today, um, actually talks about. And there's three main ways that males specifically tend to, um, deal with their grief the first being emptiness and so and stoicism the second being anger and the third being sadness and I really felt that I was um somewhat stoic I don't consider myself a very emotional person Jess can attest as she's always like trying to like give me hugs and stuff and I will just like wiggle away to get out of there but
0: um, he's physically like cringing up right yeah. now he's like
1: <laughs> we're practicing it's like an exposure when I like hug Nick, he has to just, like, deal with it. Because I'm an affectionate it. person.
2: Nothing against it. It's just, like, when it's not on my own terms, I'm, I'm like, cringing. <laughs> um, so.
1: Can you explain a little more about those three responses?
2: Yes. So um, in a 2013 uh, study done at the University of British Columbia uh, in partnership with the Canadian Institute of Health Research, they took a sample of men who had, um, had, had friends who were also males who had passed away in... Um, various accidents or health related um, traumatic experiences I guess you could call it. Um, And the three main responses in the short term um, were emptiness and stoicism, anger and sadness as I mentioned before but they also found that there were three main long-term effects as well um, that are categorized as the adventurer, the father figure and the lamplighter. Um, And it was really interesting um, the short term versus the long term and how those played off of each other. So in the short term, what they asked the participants of the study to do was find a picture that represented how they feel. Um, And a lot of men, or one man in particular, he brought in a picture of an empty bucket that was tipped over, which I thought was really interesting. And um, for him, he recalled um, how he really wanted to be strong, but felt empty, um, and that there was like this outside pressure to feel strong. But um, he chose to remain stoic as to not ruin that facade that he felt like he had to put on. Um, and then there was another picture of uh, someone brought in of a house that was completely stripped. So it was just the framework. Um, and he felt like he had always had to be the strong one again. But now he was stripped back to a more vulnerable place that was uncomfortable um, and somewhat unnatural for him. And um, I thought those were very interesting. I don't know if I personally would have chosen those specific ones, but I felt as I was reading this research that I could resonate with a lot of what I was reading, which was really interesting uh, for sure.
0: Did you feel that you had to be stoic or is, I I know you're not an emotional person, but did you feel like you couldn't be sad and you had to be like strong for the others around you?
2: Well, so I'd like to clarify. I do have emotion. I do feel things. Um, (laughs) Crazy. You're not a robot. (laughs) I'm not heartless. Um, uh, It surprises even myself sometimes. But um, for me, I personally felt, um, that I had to be stoic. Um, my father and my sister were much more expressive in their emotions, and I was not. Um, and that felt like the right place for me to be at the time. Um, and I think that one thing that's important is that it's not really an ending process. There's no real end to this, um, as I mentioned earlier. Like I don't forget that I've gone through these experiences, um, but I think that as I've sort of transitioned to to the long term and have had a chance to reflect back on where I was um, that it wasn't necessarily the most beneficial for my I'd I'd say probably mental health to be in that stoic state for so long but I think that it really helped me through that initial process even though it might have had a little bit of negativity built in
1: do you think that stoicism comes from like your masculine identity like do you think that because I feel like a lot of guys not all but many guys go to that like i have no emotion this isn't bothering me hold it all in bottle it up kind of narrative do you think that your like masculine identity played into that
2: um i think so and i think it's important not just to focus on stoicism because there's also responses that manifest themselves as anger um, as well as sadness um and people will feel guilt a lot of the time survivor's guilt is very real um But one thing that this research study pointed out that I thought was very interesting was that a lot of the men spoke about um, crying or a public outcry of grief or in some way expressing emotion to a traumatic event um, would be considered somewhat feminine and would be seen as unacceptable or signifying weakness among their friends. Um, And it was also evident in literature that women conceived this as well. Um, So the toxic masculinity didn't just stop within males and the way they viewed each other but it also had to do with how females viewed males as well so it's not just a single gender um, thing that
0: is that something that you feel as well like did you feel like you couldn't cry did you feel like you couldn't cry like
2: I mean I uh, I don't think that I felt like I couldn't cry because I in in certain places and in certain circumstances uh, I did but it wasn't to the extent that I felt like I was expected to, um, like when when this whole process was going on, um, you could almost feel eyes everywhere you went. Like everybody knew um, in my small community what had happened, so I had I felt that pressure to react a certain way, um, not just from an emotional standpoint, but the way um, I was doing pretty much everything in my daily life. In Option B, Cheryl Sandberg talks about how someone she knew. Um, actually returned to work the day after their significant other died, and people at work were like, "What are you doing? Why are you here?" Because maybe it was that individual's grieving process, but it didn't conform to what everybody else expected from that person. So it's a very individual process, um, and it's it can be definitely hard to manage how to go about that, um, and it's something I still struggle with today.
1: And I think it's. Interesting that you bring up the point about like it being an grief being an individual process because I think, particularly in like media and the way we see it in a book or a movie, like, or like what my expectation of people grieving is, like, it's I do think it's really important to note that everyone grieves differently and to like view it like from a less judgmental perspective that the way you may grieve is different from the way others may. Mm
2: -hmm. And a lot of the research um, in this University of British Columbia study talked about um, how different males manifested their grief differently. So some people um, in the long term, one of the categories that I mentioned was the adventurer. And it found that men would go and try riskier activities after they had had a close um, friend pass away because they felt some sort of mortality or morbidity of some kind. And that's how they manifested their grief. They would go skydiving, rock climbing, travel the world and do XYZ um, that they might not have otherwise done, which I think is very interesting. So there are a variety of ways that it definitely shows up.
0: What is considered like the long term? Like how long after this traumatic experience or you know the those um, categories manifesting themselves?
2: So in this study, long term was about two to three years, but long term can mean something different for every person. Um, Maybe you lost a distant relative, and that long term is two or three months. Um, losing a parent might be a little bit different. Um, so I think that, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is a very personal experience that I went through, and my process is not going to be the same as if one of you two were to lose someone close to you um, at all. It's just, it's it's kind of like a flowing process as you as you would, Ugh. if you <laughs> would. Wow.
1: What were the other two categories?
2: Um, The other two long-term categories were father figure and lamplighter.
0: What does lamplighter mean?
2: Jess asked the same question (laughs) yesterday. Um, Father figure is pretty much what it sounds like. Um, Lamplighter is the instance that we used in this research was a male lost another male friend to an overdose. Um, And that friend who was still alive had also participated in using those kind of drugs, but going forward, they became a lamplighter and turned themselves around and tried to prevent that from happening in the future. So light the way for others to avoid that same outcome, which I thought was very interesting.
0: That is very interesting. Do you see yourself falling into any of those categories or do you think you're your own kind of category um, as of right now? That's,
2: that's a great question. Um, I would say it's I wouldn't put myself into one category. I would say it's the environment in which I am currently in. Um, and then the categories change. So when I'm at home, I would say that um, I'm a little bit more of a father figure. Um, but here at school, um, I would say I'm more of an adventurer, but not in like the extreme, <laughs> extreme way that, that uh, is implied in the study. Um, but I think that each environment elicits a different reaction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned a sister. Is she older or younger?
2: She is younger. Okay. She's a freshman. Okay. In college.
0: Okay. So, can you tell me a little bit more about that dynamic um, when your mother passed away?
2: Yeah. So, um, I, I was always a mama's boy growing up, and she was, <laughs> uh, she was a little bit closer to my father. But obviously, um, someone who was a teenager losing their mother, going through high school, is specifically a girl losing their mother, going through high school, can definitely be tough and. I can't speak directly to um, that experience, but from um, what I see and what I understood um, is it was very difficult. I went to a very small high school, so everybody knew everything about everybody already to begin with. So that process was um, tough for her and she she kind of isolated herself. And um, there are certain questions that you can ask and ways that you can help people, but to a certain extent, it is their own individual process. And I'm sure you've heard this answer in a variety of contexts, but time is the healer of all wounds, which is, like, the worst answer to hear. Yeah. But because it's, like, it's true to a lot of, to a, lot of to, the, to a large extent, but it sucks to hear.
0: Right, like, that's not the answer, you know. Like, you don't want to hear that.
2: Right. No one wants to hear that, but I'm doing better now than I was two and a half years ago. Like, time is the only way that I'm going to be able to do that. There are other things that I can do to help that process along, but time is going to be big one
1: um to go back when you were talking about like anger versus sadness so i did obviously i knew nick's topic coming in so i did my own research as a good host that i am um and i saw a lot of articles about how men typically lean more towards anger than sadness and i wondered kind of
2: what your experience was with that my personal experience with that
1: sure or the research whatever you want or both um both (laughs) uh,
2: okay um personally i didn't necessarily find an anger response uh for myself. Um, I just kind of ran away from the situation as a whole, which worked really well for me. Um, can't say that that would be the case for everybody else. But um, as for anger specifically in men, the research found that it was usually an intense emotional response that would then promote some, se- some type of anger. So um, one example that is a little bit extreme that was used in the research was there's a man who had um, lost a close friend because of a fight um, so that is clearly much more in your face about anger than in some other circumstances or other traumatic events that can happen but the um, response is usually very combative um, because it's like a it's almost like a defense mechanism kind of like fight or flight I'm um, not obviously not that extreme um, I need to look through my research to find the more specific uh, quote. I don't want to get this wrong. Okay, so um, in the research, it talks about um, a man named Martin. He authored The uh, The Masculine Self. He talks about how anger is one of the few losses of controls that society affords men. So when a traumatic experience happens, it's somewhat expected. And as you noted, Jess, in your research, that a lot of... um, there's a lot of talk about men expressing themselves through anger and society has accepted that as the most masculine form of expression and therefore a lot of people fall into that category because it's what, it, what is expected um, and because men are afforded that, you're more likely to go into that way or into that um, sort of way of expressing yourself because the barriers to entry are so low. Whereas if you're seen in public crying versus being angry, there's going to be a very different response.
0: Right. And the thing is, like, obviously, uh, me as a woman, I want to think that, you know, if I saw you crying because your mother passed away, like, I'd be like, yes, that's totally acceptable. And then, you know, I don't know. it's, It's just hard to think that this anger is... Well, because obviously I know that... Anger is what men do to express themselves. Like we've seen that. But is it? But like we've seen that. I mean, like I personally. Okay, maybe you should probably manifest your grief and anger in other ways than like outward expressions of anger and, and aggression. Obviously. But like, ah,
1: this is so. Mm. But I think think about. Mm, sorry. Think about it from the perspective as like that's what society has created as being okay. Like, you and I can cry, but Nick has to punch something. And I really think that's where this really gets back to all these big issues that both genders face, that our society faces in general, have these really deep-rooted gender issues. And specifically, like, if you threw a punch at a bar because you were sad about something, everyone would be like, what the fuck, Lindsay? But if Nick threw a punch at a bar, we'd be like, huh, guys being dudes. But, like, and that flips. You sob at a bar. Everyone's like, oh, it's okay, Lindsay." Nick stops at a bar, everyone's like, what the fuck, Nick? Like, just think about, like, that, like, very small action and how that that's gendered. And really, there's nothing that's, and I think that's when, then I really get into my own head about, like, how, you know, why, why does gender have to be one or the other? Why can't we have a spectrum? Because if we really move to more of a spectrum, I think you get rid of this, like, very extreme that we talked about in Darby's episode, the extreme toxic masculinity, the extreme anger, the extreme sadness, like, why can't we create more of a
2: line and less of two boxes?
1: A healthy coping mechanism, maybe.
2: <laughs> and this is, this is kind of like, this is definitely an extreme or one level of extreme that Darby's talking about. And these uh, traumatic event or um, a tragic event can really exacerbate that extreme emotional feeling. And because as a man, I'm... I'm looked at as having to express myself in a certain way that might stunt my ability to express myself or cry at a bar. Not saying that I would cry at a bar, but...
0: Um, well, you could if you wanted to, and I would support you, Nick.
2: <laughs> who knows? It, it, is, it is a Wednesday, so it's possible. Um,
1: when you, like, look back on your grieving process and not saying it's over, but, you know, yeah. after the immediate event, do you wish you had done it differently? Or is there things that you wish you could have told yourself then that would have maybe helped the, your process, if that question makes sense? Interesting. That made sense to me.
2: <laughs> um, I, it, oh, it also made sense to me. Um, so I don't think, I appreciate the credit that you're giving me in the sense that you think I had a process, or uh, like a, a planned out process <laughs> for all this. Um, I'm a planner, Nick. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Um, I can't. I can't write in my planner for more than a week at a time. I always forget. But um, I don't think that I necessarily had like a process or at the time was thinking about it just because um, it was so overwhelming in the moment. Um, I mean, it wasn't expected. Um, So it's hard to plan for the unexpected and hard to take uh, an objective look at how I was doing. But looking back, I think that I wouldn't say that I chose the best tactics um, or chose the best route. Um, And I think that the grieving process is ongoing, but I at the same time wouldn't change anything that I did. Um, If you had told me two years from now that I'd be sitting recording a podcast with two of my friends talking about my mother's death, I would have like told you you were fucking crazy. Um, But here I am. And I think that even now me sitting here talking to you about it is an important part of that. Um, and normalizing it for me, maybe it's normalizing it for you as well. I um, mean, I think that while there are parts of the process I would maybe question myself about, I think I would do it exactly the same, um, as hard and as indirect as that route to where I am today may have been.
1: Um, so I always bring this up at every, I told you I was gonna bring this up too, um, you know, in the grieving process, did you ever like reach out to any professional help? Is that something that you think can help people, you know, men, women, really anyone like during this kind of process?
2: Um, So yeah, in the immediate aftermath I did. um, And it was something that I think really helped me. um, And I think that it can really help in any respect. I don't think that you need to have gone through a traumatic event or have to be grieving or something like that for it to help. And again, I think that there's this stigma about going to seek professional help. Um, You seek professional help in a variety of other areas. Maybe you get a nutritionist, personal trainer, a tutor, or whatever. Why can't you do that for yourself? Um, Which is something that I think should change. I will say, full disclosure, that I may have uh, forgotten to talk to my therapist in a little bit. but um, We're going
1: to get back on track. (laughs) uh, Dr.
2: Sherman, I promise, he's out there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I think it, it... It definitely helped Um, and in the the direct immediate uh, aftermath, I don't think that I really wanted that help. Um, I wanted to kind of be by myself for a little bit. Um, But I think talking to someone and talking through it with someone and being forced to address it head on can be super tough and super helpful at the same time um, because um, sometimes the best things aren't always easy um, and that it's important to get through that and make sure that you are addressing yourself because, as talked about, tying it back into my reading and research, um, <laughs> in option B, um, what they talk about is how there was a psychologist, Martin Siegelman. Hopefully, hopefully that's correct. Um, found that there are three Ps that can really stunt recovery. One of them is personalization, which is the belief that you personally are at fault. Um, the other one is pervasiveness, the belief that that event will affect all areas of your life, and the third is permanence, which is the belief that the aftershocks of the event will last in perpetuity. So I think that professional help can be a great way to address those head on if you don't want to address those with friends or maybe you don't feel comfortable addressing those with friends. But making sure that those three Ps are being addressed in this specific context of a traumatic event can really help that recovery process because at some point it has to begin. Um, It can't just stay in that grieving or traumatic period forever.
0: Right. But was there ever a point where you thought it was just going to be like that forever? Of course. Okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, like, obviously. And as, as I mentioned before, I'm a total mama's boy. So I was like, this, this sucks. It was a little bit more extreme than a, this sucks, obviously. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, it, 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 it felt like I didn't know what to do. Um, like up was down, right was left, stuff like that. Um, but eventually right became right again. Uh, up became up again. Um, stuff like that, uh, and it, it it wasn't overnight. And for a while, I thought like this is the worst thing that could have happened to me. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to go back to school and kind of escape the immediate community that I was in. Whereas my sister, she was still in it, and everywhere she went was getting eyes. So I was very lucky to be able to get out, be by myself in that period when I thought nothing's going to get better, and then. Figure out on my own that okay, it's time to put one foot in front of the other and gradually take baby steps towards being myself and being healthy again.
0: Right. Was there ever a specific moment that you felt like that, or is just you know kind of over time that you're just starting to feel a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better?
2: You're really testing my memory here. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, a specific moment. I don't really know if there was one Um, I would say so we actually did two services for my mother one that was a smaller um, family and friends thing and then one that was larger for extended family and friends I guess you could say Um, and that was in a short period of time in between a program that was at the beginning of um, the academic year and the start of the academic year so I'd actually flown home um, to Los Angeles to go to those events and I think coming back um, and f- having to fly back, I told this to Jess the other day, I was, I took a red eye to make classes the first day. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, I was, I was actually in Chicago when my first class started sophomore year. But I think that that really kind of marked a, a break, if you will. I had been home um, when my mother got sick and when she passed away and that um, I had gone to school and been at school for like five days, gone back home, been back in that environment. And I think... Flying home, kind of having that period of eight hours where I was just by myself in a transitional period, quite literally, um, was very helpful for me to kind of reset, be like, okay, it's time to go. And I'm like, there is no choice but to put one foot in front of the other. And I think that really helped me, not to say that that would help someone else, um, because again, each person's experience is very different. Um,
1: when you think about like your support system, and I guess like for someone who's listening, who's like, I've never lost someone, but how do I support someone who lost someone or support someone who's grieving? Because I think a really important point that Nick, so Nick and I had like a pre-conversation because, as stated before, Nick and I spent every waking moment of our lives together. Um, but Can we technically
2: uh, clock in for this podcast, fucking if we're probably.
1: <laughs> um, but I, I was talking to Nick about this yesterday, and he made a really great point that. So I was saying like I've never really lost someone and right now my grandma's really sick so it feels like I'm grieving the loss of my grandma like before she's um she has she's she's still alive but I'm we've really lost her in you know her brain and so I think what Nick said to me yesterday was that just because you can grieve a loss even though someone's not gone like losing someone from your immediate life and so maybe like you're not People out there listening to me preach right now, like if you're just because you haven't lost someone, you can grieve, you know, friendships, you can grieve, you know, people who've moved away, people who've left your life suddenly. I think that, like, you know, everyone can experience grief, even if it's not in a tra- quote unquote traditional mm-hmm. way. And so when you think about how someone can support someone who's going through grief, like what, what do you, like, what's something you wish someone had known?
2: That's a great question. Um so as i mentioned before i think one thing that's important to know is that you're not reminding someone of that grief like they're they're very aware of it you know it's not something that they can just kind of pack away and then be like oh you're right i have cancer like i totally forgot granted that's an extreme and i probably shouldn't make a joke about that but um it was an example it was an example yeah. <laughs> like you're not you're not going to forget that you have these things or that you lost one of your best friends maybe they moved away maybe you had a falling out or whatever. You're not going to forget that. So I think that it's important to remember that. Um, another thing is when you're asking questions, if someone's in a place of difficulty, a lot of the times people will say, how can I help? I'm definitely guilty of this as well. Is I'll ask my friends, how can I help? But depending on the circumstance, that can actually be unhelpful because it puts the onus on the person who is experiencing that grief. So one thing that you can't do um, and is actually referenced in the book um, that I, again, could not recommend more, option B, Um, is how when Sheryl Sandberg experienced um, a friend who um, was in the hospital, she went and instead of asking, how can I help? Um, She had an anecdote about someone who went to the lobby of that hospital and let that friend know, I'm here in the lobby. If you need a hug, you don't have to come down and get like, you don't have to come down. Like just being there and not putting the onus on someone else or saying, what do you not want on a burger, instead of asking someone, oh, do you want me to bring you a burger? You could say, what do you not want on a burger? Um, so maybe if Jess, you're experiencing some kind of um, grief or traumatic event, it could be like, what do you not want on a burger? Bring you a burger and just leave, you know? That way it takes the onus off of that person, gives them one less thing to worry about, but also makes sure that they know that their support system is also there for them as big or small as the gesture may be. Um, and I think that that can really go a long way. So one thing that thinking back to my personal experience with it, we had this massive and I'm talking like massive, like four and a half foot cooler sitting on our front porch because people were just bringing our family food. If you need Tupperware, we still have Tupperware from two and a half years ago. Like, please uh, can I say my phone number on the pod? Please take it. Um, Like people would just bring us food, which, and I make a joke about, um, the number, the amount of Tupperware we have, but it was it was nice to know that without us doing anything, we still had our support system there for us, big or small. People offered to pick my sister up from school. Um, oh, do you need um, breakfast? We'll go br- grab you a, a smoothie or whatever. So it's those little things and taking the onus off of that person that can really make a big impact, at least in my personal experience. Again, did you
1: have? I have one more question, like after, but did you have any more research that you wanted to share?
2: Um, let's see. Not, not necessarily. I think that one thing that was really interesting and um, in the research specifically from um, the University of British Columbia was that a lot of the participants, their concerned, their concerns were centered about being seen as less of a man. Um, And it also related to how women see men as well as how men see men. So while I really wanted to talk about about toxic masculinity and kind of what it can be like in a grieving process, I think that it's important to know that toxic masculinity isn't just how men view other men and how I feel like I have to be as a man, but it's also how women as well as other societal institutions view how men and women are supposed to act. Um, which I think was something that I wasn't expecting to come across in my research um, is something that I still don't completely understand, but something that I think is very important.
0: Yeah, like I didn't really expect you to say that like how I view you, me as a woman, how I view you. So that's so interesting um, because you you know, you never really think, oh, toxic masculinity, i'm not I'm not a dude, and I don't need to worry about this. and it's it's not true. We, we as a society kind of need to change how we view
1: men and you know we also we all feed into it like everyone's feeding into it i've i think i'm like very conscious but i i of course feed into it everyone does and even when i like really think i've like worked to be like not feeding into those gender roles like it's it's a part i think you have to be really conscious about it all the time
2: there are little consequences everywhere that you don't even imagine and don't get me wrong i definitely feed into it as well and i'm sitting up here uh, talking about it but By no means am I an expert or not guilty of doing these things as well, because even when I see other people who are other men who are um, going through something like this, I kind of expect a certain reaction of sorts, um, even though I myself have gone through it. um, And I think it's a difficult road to change, but it's worth taking a critical look at that first because you need to know what's wrong in order to change it.
1: Okay. My other question. I was wondering if you would be willing to tell the pod a little bit about your mom.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so my mom, uh, her name's Kathy. Um, she, let's see, she grew up in Salt Lake, um, went out to Los Angeles where I grew up. Um, her and my dad actually met like by chance on a lake in Arizona or something like that. Yeah, wild. Um Crazy. like her raft was sinking on a boat or something like her, her, her raft was sinking and my dad's fraternity's houseboat rescued her um no swear to that's god that's actually awesome swear to god um it actually happened um and then um after she graduated grad school and stuff like that she worked for direct tv for a while um and her one of her mentors uh was one of the founders of direct tv which was Um, really interesting so they got really close and he helped her with her career um and one way that he described her and her leadership style was with a velvet hammer um like she was gonna get it done and like if she had to fire you she was gonna do it but would almost put you in a place where you felt like you had to say thank you afterwards um (laughs) which was really interesting um and she she worked in media for a lot of her life and um was very very accomplished um I mean, I don't. I don't really know how to. Dis- like, I don't know what you're expecting me to. to
1: There's no wrong about. answer. You're doing great. Yeah, no, that was it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um. So she was. She was definitely a badass. She would fly from LA to New York every week for work. Um. She had her little bubble in New York City. It was from, what is it? Is it 58th? Is the bottom of Central Park all the way down to Bryant Park? That was her bubble in New York. Um. Let's see. Would never. Would never buy tickets for Hamilton, but always entered the lottery, uh, for <laughs> Hamilton. Um. I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, she was also like the most oblivious when it came to seeing celebrities. So, with her, oh um, <laughs> with her, with her job, she got a ton of great perks, um, especially because she was um, an executive for DirecTV and SiriusXM, these media companies. So, my mom flies or used to fly uh, every week from L.A. to New York, and one time she happened to be going through uh, Detroit, and she was she got upgraded and was sitting in business class or whatever, and the guy. She um, she was sitting next to some guy that she knew she recognized but didn't know who it was. And he started talking about his travel schedule being like, um, oh yeah, Michael has me flying all over the country, um, going to X, Y, and Z. Um, Michael in this circumstance is Michael Bay, director of Transformers. Um, oh. <laughs> and, the, and my mom decided to tear into him for complaining about his travel schedule because she traveled every single week. Kathy,
1: you uh, savage. And, go off. Uh,
2: and so... She was like, "You should like, if you want to spend more time with your family and all that stuff." Um, And she got off the plane having no idea who this guy was—literally zero (laughs) idea. Um, Turned out to be Josh Duhamel, star of Transformers, married to Fergie. Fergie. No way! And she had like torn him (laughs) to shreds for complaining about his travel schedule. Um, So maybe that little snippet kind of gives you an idea as to as to who she was. She still, she had no idea. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's awesome. All right, one one last question. Favorite quality about your mom? <sighs> I know it's a tough one.
2: Um, uh, I'll go with um drive.
1: That's awesome. Okay, I will skip my last thing. Um, Sad.
2: We almost okay, got through it without without tears. No, I'm feeling We're a close. little
1: weepy right now. Uh-oh. Well, no, live Nick has a really good quote. That he says all the time that I know it's your mom.
2: Oh, live with intention. That was hers. I stole it. Shame. Shameless.
0: I love that. Do you feel like you live with intention?
2: Uh, I try. Okay. I don't think it's something that you can do every single day, every yeah, single second. Yeah, no, that's hard. But yeah. might as well try.
1: All right. Last question is always the takeaway. Like, what do you want our audience to take
2: away from this? Um, I think it's important to know that every single person's process is different. Um, male, female. Um, But using your support system can really help talking about it and talking about it with your support system, Um, whether that's friends or professionals, can really help um, avoid those three Ps that can stunt um, that recovery process. So I think that's that's very important and to remember that every day is going to be farther from that event and that eventually um, it'll all work out it's hard to look past those like gender boxes, if you will. But, um, to the extent that you can, I think that that's important as well. I love
0: that. Nick, thank you so much. You have been such an incredible guest and I just want to thank you for being so incredibly, you know, open and honest with us today and sharing all your good research, but also your personal experience, which is invaluable. So thank you.
2: Thanks for having me. I, I, Wish I was watching my soccer game, but. uh...
0: Yo, he straight up asked us if he could watch the soccer game while we recorded the podcast. We're like, dude, I, we're like absolutely
1: not.
2: I I got notifications from the game mid-recording and had incredible restraint to not check the score. It's currently halftime, one-one <laughs> <laughs> for those who are curious.
1: Very curious about a, a game they they don't even know who's playing. <laughs> Sorry,
2: it's a very serious topic, and then we're talking about soccer. Yeah, anyway,
1: it happens. Well, thanks for coming, Nick. I'm sure I'll see you in three more hours since we spend all of our time together.
2: Thanks for having me. So
1: that's it for this episode of Sorry We're Open.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in. And I just want to thank Nick again for being such an incredible guest. I learned a lot and kind of, I appreciate
1: him wow, English.
0: I appreciate him like kind of bearing his
1: soul to us and also doing research. So that was really cool. Yeah, it was. I mean, Nick's one of my really good friends, so getting to hear him talk about this part of his life on the podcast was special and cool. And so, you know, the podcast is growing, trying to really dig into topics from every corner of our lives and everybody's lives. So as always, if you're interested in coming on the podcast and talking about something that's really personal to you, nothing is too serious or too out there or too different. Or or too
0: funny or too random or, you know, whatever. I mean... Obviously, we want to encourage you to bring these like serious, important topics to us. But if you're like, ah, I don't have a serious, important topic, like we'd love to have you regardless. We think everyone has an
1: incredible story to share. And the whole point of this is we want to get as many different perspectives on topics as we can and to challenge me and Lindsay to expand our perspectives. Um, so if you're interested, hit us up on the Instagram, text me, smoke, signal, no, whatever you want to contact me with. Um, and Lindsay and I will find a time to schedule you.
0: Yeah, we're we're a uh, little busy bees over here. We're like, okay, schedule, schedule, schedule. I'm like, oh I'm not not
1: here this weekend. Yeah, Lindsay is really thrown off it this weekend, but no, sorry. Um and as always follow us on Instagram at Sorry we're Podcast. Um and we'll see you next week.
0: Yeah, that's all.